We're going to continue our study in Ecclesiastes this morning. And so Ecclesiastes chapter 9 is where we'll pick up. This is our 12th sermon in Ecclesiastes. And Lord willing, we have three more. So December 29th is, is the plan that we finish this book. Um, so if you're, if you're ready to be done with it, the, the end is in sight. But Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And we're going to read verse 13 of chapter 9 all the way through the end of chapter 10. And so we have quite a, a large passage this morning. I just want to read a quote that I came across as I was, I was preparing for this um, about this passage. So one commentator says, quote, Of all the passages in Ecclesiastes, this one is probably the most difficult to interpret and preach. It is a difficult text, and it seems to lack coherence. It contains relatively disparate units, and hence it is difficult to bring them under one overarching theme. And so if you're confused, by the end of this message, it's the text's fault, not mine, okay? <laughs> it is. And so as we go through this, um, it, it is. It it's, it's reads some, somewhat like passages or parts of Proverbs, where, where it's like there's just these groups of, of Proverbs, these sayings that seem to be randomly grouped together. And so these verses, a, a number of themes are covered, um, but, but I've titled the message Wisdom Superior but Susceptible because I think that is, I think that is a cohesive theme because we're, we're going to focus on wisdom and, and that it is better. That's a refrain you'll hear. It's better. It's better. Uh, but we'll also see that wisdom is susceptible, that a little bit of folly can undo a lot of wisdom. So that's, that's what we're going to look at, wisdom superior but susceptible. So let's read together. You can, you can follow along as I read Ecclesiastes chapter 9. I'm going to begin in verse 13. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But... There was found in it a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his, works are, and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen servants on horses and princes walking on the ground like servants. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. 
The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, we confess that, that some parts of your word are confusing or hard to understand. And so we're asking at the outset that you would give us wisdom to understand. Lord, as we seek to apply these verses and we seek to live wise lives in this world, would you use these God-breathed words to affect our lives and our hearts that we might honor you and live lives of wisdom under the sun. And it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, we're gonna work through three sections uh, here in this passage. We're gonna start first with that illustration, that, that parable, if you will, in verses 13 through 18. So the end of chapter nine, we're gonna see wisdom illustrated by that story. And then the second section, we're gonna see folly on display in verses one through 15 of chapter 10 which we, we cover lots of different themes there in those verses. And then finally, as chapter 10 closes out, we'll see wisdom on the throne or the benefit of wisdom in the king's place. So let's begin there in first section, the end of chapter 9, chapter 9, verses 13 through 18. And so it starts, the, the, the preacher starts with this story, uh, and the story illustrates what wisdom is like. And so, so this story, it lays forth a pretty simple and understandable point this story, what it teaches, is actually going to be the foundation for all that comes after in chapter 10. And the point that this simple story makes is, is that wisdom is better than might or power. That wisdom is superior. I mean, that's what it says in verse 16. Wisdom is better than might. That's what the story illustrates. Then again, in verse 17, the preacher says, the words of the wise are better than the shouts of the fool. And then finally, in verse 18, he says it again, wisdom is better than weapons of war. So the superiority of wisdom is what this, this, this story illustrates and what the rest of this passage is built on, that wisdom should be pursued. That, that's the main, main idea. So the point of the story to highlight sup the superiority of wisdom does it in the following way. Notice this story. The story, there's this small city with a few men in it, verse 14, and then this great king so if you're a great king, you assume there's a great army with the great king. And so you have a small city and a great king who represents a big country or city, and it comes against a small city. And so the end result is all but, all but predetermined, right? This is an underdog story like none other. So, so when, when you think you know what's going to happen, there, there, there's a shock. But there's this poor wise man in the city, and this poor wise man delivered the city, which means he saved the city from destruction, we don't know how he did it. That, that's not the point. The point is that wisdom, the wisdom of this poor man, gave this small, undermanned, overmatched city victory over the great, mighty, powerful king and his army. 
And so that, that highlights the superiority of wisdom. You can be as strong as you want, like this king and his army, and they still couldn't conquer this small city that was guarded and delivered by a poor wise man. The king had might and manpower, but he couldn't conquer the city. Wisdom triumphed. But notice that's not the end of the story. Notice there in verse 15. That's not the end. You would think that this poor wise man would, would, would be led through the street. Maybe it's just one street through the small city. you think he'd be celebrated, but verse 15 says, no one remembered that poor man. So, so the time of need had passed. They weren't under attack anymore. And so now this poor man is not remembered. And so it would seem to say that wisdom, though desirable and superior, doesn't lead to fame and fortune. The poor wise man that delivered the city probably remained poor. The end of verse 16 tells us that the, poor's ma- the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. And so even though that's the case, even though the wise are disregarded and the words are not often heeded, the conclusion remains that wisdom is better than might. It's like the story says, wisdom's superior and you should pursue wisdom. However, you should understand what's going to come with wisdom. It's not what you might expect. You're, you're not going to be lauded and praised. You're actually going to be forgotten and probably not listened to. And so the, the preacher is showing the, the superiority of wisdom and that it should be pursued regardless of what it does or doesn't produce in its aftermath. And so wisdom is better than might. And even though, and this is true in our time, isn't it, wealth and social class are far more impressive to people. If you drive a nice car, if you have a nice job, if you have a lot of people under you, people are prone to listen to you more readily than someone who's dressed not as nice, with not as nice of a job. It tends to be the case. People with wealth and social class seem to be, we, we want to hear from them. They're, they're more impressive than wisdom in that people will normally listen more readily to people of great wealth and high social class than to a poor wise man. However, that's the case, verse 17, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. So he's saying, listen for the wise person. Listen for the wise person. The words of the wise are heard in quiet. And so in verse 17, there's these two categories of people. And in these two categories of people represent kind of two categories or types of communication. There's the quiet words of the wise on one hand, and then there's the shouting of the ruler. And notice, the shouting of the ruler is among fools. And what's interesting is the shouting is not done by the fools in, in verse 17. Instead, it's the shouting among the fools of their ruler. And so the fools are listening to the shouting of, of the foolish leader. And so all the fools are gathering around this voice of folly because he's shouting. He, he, he's drawing them to him, and they're listening. Instead of listening and heeding the wise words that are, that are in quiet, so it implies that the quiet voice of the wise is overmatched by the shouting of a powerful ruler. I mean, we see this at work, right, in, in, in large group gatherings, right? When, when, when the large group catches a phrase or a theme, there's no, no, no voice is going to overturn the weight of the many. And so this ruler, by virtue of, we would assume, his position alone is heeded. And so, yeah, we, he must know what he's talking about, Whereas the, the position of the wise man, it's probably the virtue of his position alone that he is disregarded. Well, what does he know? He's a poor wise man. And so the state, this is the state the preacher is, is recounting for us, the state of human relations under the sun. 
I mean, it's true. I mean, as I read this, and, and a, lot of, a lot of these themes are, are political leaders, and, and just as I think about the wealthy and the powerful in our world, I mean, I, I don't get political often, but it's hard to escape this reality from these verses, right? especially when it comes to politics, folly among leaders is rampant. And you think, how in the world are they in leadership? I mean, across the board, it's an equal party employer, I'm not, I'm not getting in one side or the other. It's all across the board. Folly rules and reigns. No political party, or dare I even say, no denomination is exempt. Folly often finds its place at the top, and that's, that's not good. So this opening illustration of wisdom is to show that wisdom is superior, but also it highlights the insignificance of the wise. When it comes to popular opinion, Right? It's just the way it is. People don't listen to the voice of wisdom, of reason. It's, it's folly that is often heeded. I mean, one commentator goes as far as to say that this story isn't a moral tale to show people what to do. He says it's a cautionary tale to show people what they're like. So he doesn't say this says, hey, just be wise. He says this is, this is the state of things. People heed folly over wisdom. And so it means for us, if we're going to pursue wisdom, if we're going to be guided by wisdom in this life, we must not assume that the way of wisdom leads to fame and fortune. We must, we must not assume that the way of wisdom leads to popularity or acceptance. If, if your pursuit or your desire for wisdom is so that you would be well thought of, I want to be the old guy or the old woman that everyone looks to for wisdom, that's probably not going to be the case. No one's probably going to look for you look to you for advice. That's how it works. And so our motivation for pursuing wisdom is not what, how it will be received or how we will be affected, but it's simply because it is superior and it's to be desired more than might or power. It's better, the preacher says, than weapons of war. But notice how verse 18, as he continues, how verse 18 ends, because that's the other part of the sermon title. So wisdom is, is superior, but it's also susceptible. So verse 18, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. And, and so it's susceptible. Wisdom can be overmatched by folly. No matter how long and how consistently wisdom is the guide, one moment of folly, one person can come along and destroy much good. I mean, this, this could be true for a family business left in the hands of an irresponsible heir, Right? One person of folly ruins decades of, of successful business. It could be true for a, a country ruled by wisdom for decades, only to be overthrown and led astray by one foolish leader. Right? One rotten apple spoils the bushel. Maybe you've heard that before. It only takes one. In fact, this is exactly what happened in, in Israel. So think about you, you had King David and then his son Solomon. And then when Solomon leaves uh, Rehoboam, his son in charge, and, and there's an issue and, and, and Rehoboam has his, his young friends, and he's getting advice from them. He's getting advice from the, his, his father's trusted advisors. And the father's trusted advisors say, hey, you need to respond. You need to lead in this way. And his young people say, oh, no, you flex your muscles. He listens to the, to the young, immature, and it goes terrible. It goes terrible. Rehoboam ruins, right? So from him on, it's a split, divided kingdom. When David and Solomon had worked and unified and made Israel the greatest of all nations in all the world, and and one, one generation later, it's, it's split and divided over the words of, of these, this one leader heeded the voice of folly. 
And so wisdom is susceptible. It's not invincible, which is, which is the point that, that the preacher makes as he turns to chapter 10. So look there at verse 1 of chapter 10. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. I mean, this is a good thought before our lunch, right? Dead flies. Think of all these dead things, masses in a perfumer's ointment, and it gives off a stench. And that's an analogy. And he says, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. And so the specifics, we, we don't really know the, the culture and what, what this would have meant specifically, but it is clear. His point is that a little folly ruins a lot of wisdom and honor. So we can assume the perfumer's ointment is supposed to smell good, right? It's perfume. It's supposed to get off a, give off a good smell. And once a dead fly gets in it, after a while, the smell isn't pleasant anymore. And so the dead fly makes what was intended to smell good and what once did smell good, it makes it stink. And so one little dead fly ruins it all, no matter how much perfume it was. It's all ruined by one little dead fly, one, one commentator says it doesn't take much folly to turn things sour because folly stinks. All it takes is one rash word, one rude remark, one hasty decision, one foolish pleasure, or one angry outburst to spoil everything. It's easier to make a stink than to create sweetness. Just a little bit ruins a lot. That, that's his point. A little bit of folly can ruin a lot of wisdom. And so the preacher is making this con contrast between a lot and a little. Think about examples. I mean, think about political leaders or religious leaders. A lifetime of public service is overshadowed or forgotten because of a, a scandal that happened on, on one day or, or one interview where one word slipped. Entire careers are ruined by that one moment. Or a pastor who had built a, a, a legacy of faithful service for years or decades has a momentary lapse in judgment. Whatever it is, a momentary lapse of judgment, and he can lose it all. Folly, one bit of folly can ruin a lot of wisdom and honor. One ounce of folly outweighs 10 pounds of wisdom. One foolish decision outweighs thousands of wise ones. That's his point. Wisdom is easily overcome by folly. And so he continues this thought in these following verses by, by further illustrating Kind of, kind of the, these diverging paths of wisdom and folly. You're either on one or you're on the other. And, and he does, he, he, he highlights this, the, the opposition here and then urges us to stay far away from folly, to, to pursue the path of wisdom. So look there at verse 2. A man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Now again, I, it was, I'm not getting political here either. Right? This is not a comment on the American political landscape. A wise man goes to the right and a, a, a fool goes to the left. That's, that's not his point here. Right? The comment, the, the point here is that these two hands, I mean, it's all over Old Testament literature. Think about the, the right hand and the left hand. Think about Jesus on, on the day of judgment. The sheep will be at the Father's right hand and the goats at the left hand. Right? That these hands were, were representative of, of places. And so the right hand was the place of power and and goodness, and moral perfection, and, and protection even, whereas the left hand was, was ineptness or perversity. And so these are two different places. And so he's saying the wise man from his heart is inclined towards the right, towards the right hand, towards goodness, whereas the fool's heart inclines him to the left. And so the wise man and the fool are traveling on opposite paths. And they're being led there, notice he says, by their hearts. 
A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, towards wisdom, towards godliness, while a fool's heart inclines him to the left, away from wisdom, away from God. And so these are the two paths that he lays out. And then verse 3 tells us that, that even though there are diverse paths, we don't have to, it's not hard to tell who's on what path. Verse 3, you know when a fool is on the path of folly. Verse 3, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. Now, some people say that's, that's just literally saying he just tells everyone, I'm a fool. And I don't think that's the case. I think it's more like everything he does, everyone except him knows that he's the fool because it's clear. The way of folly is easily identified. Those on that way make it clear. And the path of folly is traveled by many. The world is filled with fools on the path to folly. In verses 4 through 7, as, as he continues, address some of the common places that you might find folly. So, he, again, this is where he transitions pretty abruptly. Verse 4, there's an angry ruler. And so, so that in this discussion of folly, well, here's a place that you find folly, the preacher would say, in the angry ruler. And he says, if, if you encounter folly, if the angry ruler rises against you, don't leave your place. Don't get angry in response. Rather... Respond calmly because calmness, wisdom, will lay great offenses to rest. I mean, it, it reminds me of the proverb, don't deal with a fool according to his folly. When the angry ruler rises up, don't get in a yelling match with him. Be calm because calmness, the way of wisdom, eases, eases tempers. It, it, it will lay great offenses at rest. And it's reminiscent of the counsel that was given earlier in chapter 8 when, when he urged not to hastily exit the king's presence. If you remember back in chapter 8. And so in this case, the path of wisdom is a calm response that eases the situation as opposed to the path of folly that would respond uh, to the angry ruler with anger. And, 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 and destruction would, would befall the person who responds to the angry ruler with anger. And then, so just to, so we don't miss the pattern, verses 5 through 7, right, the, the foolish ruler isn't an abnormality. In fact, the preacher seems to think that folly in high places is more of the norm, so, so he continues, verse 5, There's an evil that, I see, that I've seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in, a lo, sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. It's a great evil, the preacher says, that I've seen, which is the fact that folly is set in many high places. So it's not just one angry ruler that's governed by folly. He says, I see it all over. Folly is set in high places. And folly actually proceeds from the ruler. From the highest position of authority all the way down, the preacher says, folly tends to reign. When a fool is in charge, he or she appoints more fools. Right? That, that's, that's the pattern. And the entire order of things, when folly rules and reigns, the entire order is turned upside down. I mean, that's the comment there about horses and slaves. So everything is turned upside down. So that those who are supposed to be riding on horses are now walking. Those who are supposed to be walking are now riding on horses. It, it's just a comment on how things are, are inverted when folly reigns, and that's not the way it's supposed to be. And so the preacher's point, much like the opening illustration, is that when folly is reigning, there's no room for wisdom. There's no room for wisdom. And where folly reigns, there is danger. There's danger for, for those under the, the foolish leader, but also to the the fool themselves, there's danger. I think that's the point in verses 8 through 11. So he who digs a pit will fall into it, and the serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. So in these circumstances, the fool falls into his own pit. Do you see there, first verse 8, he who digs a pit will fall into it. 
His own pit, the pit he just dug, he will fall into. He who breaks through a wall encounters a serpent. So, so the one who goes haphazardly breaking through a wall, who doesn't consider what might be behind the wall or under the wall. Or he who quarries stones, the, these stones, his activity actually harms himself. Or he who splits logs is endangered by the act. And so these, in all these instances, I think the preacher is illustrating folly, a life of folly, a life bent towards the path of folly. And, and his point in, in these illustrations is to highlight that it's dangerous for the individual. It's dangerous. You're, you're, you're going to fall into the pit if you're not governed by wisdom. It's going to be detrimental to yourself. It'll only lead to your own harm and downfall. And so the cure for folly, the only protection against the dangers of folly, is provided by wisdom. So pursuing wisdom is the only way. So you can't just kind of take a detour off of the path of folly. You have to get off of folly and get on wisdom. There's only two ways. And so he's saying the cure for folly is to pursue wisdom. In verse 10, I think that's, that's his point there in verse 10, wisdom helps one to succeed. So if the iron's blunt and, and one doesn't sharpen it, he has to use more strength. That's not wise. But if you, if you sharpen the edge of the iron... Right? You can succeed easier. It's not as hard. It's, it's not as difficult. Wisdom makes the path easier and clear. Wisdom helps one succeed. Wisdom is smarter and wisdom is patient. And so the preacher wants us to avoid the path of folly and take the path of wisdom. Which then leads to verses 12 through 15 where the contrast is again highlighted between folly and wisdom. And in these words, the words of the mouth are the telltale signs. So, so it's not just in rulers, but now he's going to go into to the, the words that are used. Now, it's, I think he's, again, on the level of leader, but it certainly applies all the way down to every individual. That the words of, of, of the mouth are a telltale sign of folly or wisdom. Look there at verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. That's the contrast. In verse 13, he highlights the fool's talk. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, talks about what's going to happen and what, what, it, what it's like and what it's going to be like, though no man knows what's going to be. So he's, the fool is talking about things that no one knows, but the fool thinks he knows. And so he just keeps talking and talking and talking. The words of the fool consume him, lead to evil, and they go on and on and on. The fool thinks he or she knows everything. And the fool never stops talking about what will be. And not only the words, but the fool's toil continues to go on and on and on, but he never gets anywhere because he doesn't even know where he's going. I mean, that's what he says in verse 15. And so his toil, like his words, just keep going. And they're purposeless. They're futile. And this is not how the words of the wise function. So, so he, he emphasizes the foolish talk. He says that's not the way that the wise talk. And so words of the mouth are evidence of what path you're on. And so the preacher would have us know that the words we use, the way we use them, and the fruit that they produce are all determined by whether we're a wise person or a fool. And so your words matter. I mean, so I, at one point of application that I'll just stop and make here is that we ought to be careful what we say. Your words matter. My words matter. We teach our kids a song, Be careful, little mouth, what you say. Well, be careful, little mouth, what you say. For a father up above is looking down with love. Well, be careful, little mouth, what you say. You ought to be careful what you say. I mean, one example that, that is often used, maybe, maybe you use a harsh word 
to a coworker or to a spouse or to a child, and, and, and you, you're convicted and you apologize. You say, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to say that. Right? Maybe you said that before. While genuine sorrow may exist, that apology isn't totally accurate. Instead, it should go something like, I'm sorry, I said exactly what I wanted to say, which I shouldn't have. Right? We say what we mean. Right? We say what we mean. There's a connection between what we say and who we are. That's exactly what the preacher is doing. He's saying the fool uses words one way, and the wise person uses his words another way. Words reveal who you are. There's a connection between the words that you use and how you use them and the fruit that they produce. There's a connection, relationship between the words and who you are. And and Jesus would make the same connection in the Gospels when he says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so the words that come out of your mouth, they, they don't just start at your tongue, they start in your heart. And so we should be careful of that connection. And so our words are a good thermometer for us, for me. Are you angry often? Are you frustrated? Are you discouraged? Are you proud? Are are you judgmental? From the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We cannot be disconnected from our words. They are an extension of us. And so as Christians, the call is for you and for me to be careful how we talk. We ought to use our words wisely. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. There's wisdom in that. Sometimes it's better to keep quiet. Use your words wisely. Use your words to encourage others. Use words that that fit the occasion. Use words that are true and give grace to those who are listening. In our house, we started talking about using honeycomb words. That's from Proverbs 16, 24. Gracious words are like a honeycomb. We want to use honeycomb words. We want to use gracious words. And we, 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 we focus on that because that's not what is often flying around our house. And that's evidence of, of the hearts of the parents and the heart of the father. And so we want to we use gracious words like honeycomb. We, we translate it to, to ice cream. Gracious words are like ice cream that are sweet to the soul and health to the body so, so that our youngest can understand. We, we want our words to help people. We want people to like listening to the words we say. And so, uh, just a call to be careful what we say, to use our words wisely, which leads to this, the final section here, verses 16 through 20, the preacher turns his attention to wisdom and folly now on the throne in the, the highest place. And so in, this, in this section, the main idea, again, is simple. The preacher simply asserts that wise leadership is a blessing for the land, Whereas foolish leadership is a curse to the land. So look there at verse 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. That's a woe. That's a curse. But happy are you, O land. Blessed are you, O land, when your king is a son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. So notice the contrast. Immature, foolish kings feast all day starting in the morning. They start their feast in the morning and they don't stop. All they do is feast and get drunk and party. And, that, and he says, woe to you, O land, when that's your leadership. But that's not good for land. But blessed are you, land, when wisdom is on the throne. And it's not that there's no feasting. That's not the point. Where wisdom is on the throne, but where wisdom is on the throne, feasting comes at the proper time. 
In fact, the feasting serves the greater purpose of of leading well. Feasting is for strength, not simply to get drunk like the fool. And so it's good when wisdom leads and knows the time of things. And the contrast continues as, as he works through verses 18 and 19 of, through sloth, and I think, again, he's talking about the, the, the folly versus wisdom who's, who's leading from the throne. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, through laziness, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. And so the fool, the one who feasts in the morning, is also the person whose life is marked by sloth and laziness. Notice they, they wake up, and they feast, and they don't stop until they go to bed. And the house of this person is falling apart. This person doesn't work to fix it. The person doesn't even know how to work. This person is a fool and nothing matters to the fool who lays down at night and sees the, the roof leaking and says, oh, it's all right, tomorrow I feast. Whereas the contrast with verse 18 is, is verse 19, the wise person, the, the king that's, that's wise, understands that bread is made for laughter and that wine gladdens life. And so these are used appropriately in the life of the wise leader. The wise person recognizes that feasting in its proper time for its proper purpose is a blessing. And the wise person, notice the comment there, money answers everything. Right? That, that's, that, that's confusing, isn't it? It doesn't, really does it. But in this context, I think his point is that the wise person, unlike the lazy fool, works hard and earns money so that there, there's money to buy the bread and to buy the wine and to buy whatever is needed. So when a need arises, the person who leads by wisdom says, we have a surplus to, to meet that need. And, and money does answer everything in the sense that you're able to, to meet the needs as they arise. Whereas on this other side, there is no excess. Everything is spent for feasting. And no one cares about what comes next. The fool is out of money and couldn't even pay to have his roof leaked if he wanted to. And so that leads to the final verse, verse 20. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. And so when folly sits on the throne, cursing the king and those in charge would be pretty easy to do, wouldn't it? So when you're being led, when, 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 when the highest authority is, is held by the fool, it'd be really easy to say, to badmouth the king. Be even natural, you could say. But the preacher warns against, don't even think evil thoughts. Why? Because, he says, a bird or some winged creature will tell the matter. Now, now what does he mean here? I don't think he means that, that birds can talk. And then when someone says something bad about the king, the bird goes and flies, like, you know, in uh, Cinderella, right, when they're, they're all talking. I don't think that's his point. I think his point is simply... When you start thinking evil thoughts, the natural progression is it's going to lead to words and actions. And he says, so cut it off at the beginning. Don't even think evil thoughts. The only way to prevent actions, words and actions, is to avoid even evil thoughts. So don't even start down the path, I think is what he's saying. Because eventually, if you start harboring evil thoughts about the king, his point is that the king is going to find out. Because that path is where it goes. That's where the path leads. And so the wise person knows the dangers of talking, of taking the way to the left and avoids it at all costs. And so the preacher, as, as he concludes chapter 10, is calling us to wisdom as opposed to folly. And so the point of application, very simply, as, as I close, is simply to call us to build our lives on the rock. To, wisdom builds on the rock. So, so we are called to live lives of wisdom. 
And a wise life, I think, here is, is a, a life that is lived towards God. A wise life is a God-oriented or a God-fearing life. I and mean, we'll see that at the end of this book, that, that fear God and keep his commands. This, this is the sum of the matter. This is what life is for. And so this call to wisdom is to reorient our lives in a Godward direction. It's not a call to, to read more books or to listen to more podcasts. This call to wisdom is a call to become more God-oriented, to live your life before God, to live and breathe and move in light of who God is and, and how he has revealed himself to us. It's a call to heed the words of God and take action. It's a call to build upon the rock. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 7. He said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and it beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And so this call to wisdom, it must be based on the rock that is Christ himself. We, we can't just be wise apart from, from being united to Jesus by faith and being born again and given a spirit so that we, so that we can read Ecclesiastes, beneficial with, with, the, with the illumination of God's Spirit who indwells those who are His people. And so it must be a Christ-grounded pursuit. And so I'm not just saying, hey, just be wise. You can't do this apart from union with Jesus, apart from faith in Him. And it's as we're, we're united to Jesus, as we're His people and we're, we're given His Spirit, that we then can live wise lives, which apart from Him we cannot it is as we stand on the rock that we will learn to recognize and embrace wisdom wherever it is found, filtering out all the noise of the culture that distracts us and distorts our values. It is as we stand on the rock that we will learn to value wise words over oily words, whether they come from politicians, advisors, or even preachers. It is as we stand on the rock that we will learn those necessary skills required to survive even the autocratic and corrupt state. The call is to stand on the rock to hear the words of God and abide by them. That's our call. That's where wisdom is found. May God give us wisdom. Let's pray.